Lord, as we open up your word, I pray, God, that we would have ears to hear, Lord, that you'd give us eyes to see what you want us to discover and what you want us to learn. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in what I say. I pray, God, you give me the words. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6. I've entitled the message this morning, Authentic Worship. Authentic Worship. As we jump in, you may be thinking, what, what does this have to do with worship? I want us to look back at what we looked at last week. And I want us to go back to chapter 12, verse 25. And if we'll look there in verse 25, notice what the author says. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now notice how he concludes the chapter. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As he concludes chapter 12, he gives them an exhortation to offer to God acceptable worship. Then you got to, and one thing that's fascinating is when we look at our Bibles, we did, when the translators translated, I mean, the verses and the chapters were done by translators. So this was something that was written just in a, in a unit. And we get into chapter 13, and now let's keep reading here. And I'm going to move over here to read this. Look at chapter 13, verse 1 through 6, because what I believe he does here, I believe that he now gives us an indication of what acceptable worship looks like. In verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's fascinating. When we get into chapter 13, the first three verses seem to be primarily about love. Verse four seems to be primarily about purity within marriage. Verses five and six seem to be about contentment. We look at this, and, and this morning we're going to look at acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. As I was prayerfully considering this morning, one thing that I was thinking about is Yesterday, my little girl, Abigail, she made some waffles. It was two days ago, Abigail, wasn't it? Not yesterday. And she made some really good waffles. And uh, I don't know, I, at first I didn't know what she put in them. I just knew they were good. And so this morning, as I was thinking last night, I said, I, I, she got up this morning. I said, Abigail, you need to tell me what, how you made those waffles. And she looked at me and goes, Why? I said, just tell me, give me the ingredients. So she used flour, baking powder, salt, sugar, eggs, oil, and milk. Those ingredients were necessary in order to get Abigail's famous waffles. You can't get Abigail's famous waffles without those ingredients. 
This morning, I want you to think about that analogy, and I want you to think about how do we get to the characteristics of authentic worship without the proper ingredients for authentic worship? One leads to the other. One is a byproduct of the other. I think sometimes when we think about worship and we think about our lives, we forget that. We want the result without understanding the root. We want to focus on the doing without recognizing the being. We want to see the deeds without the abiding. We want to see the fruit without the filling. We want to live in a way that sometimes neglects that. But I want to encourage you this morning. Today we're going to look at really two aspects of this authentic worship. The first one we're going to look at is ingredients of authentic worship. And all I want to do here is sort of observe what we've been seeing in the flow of the book of Hebrews. I want us to go through this part. This is really going to be more introduction. The second aspect of this is going to be the characteristics of authentic worship. But I want you to think with me, what are the ingredients of authentic worship? We may come up with more but I do believe we will not come up with less than what I give you. There's more involved, but there's not less involved. The three things I want you to, to, to consider here on these ingredients, the first one is faith. We're really getting a picture that we can't live the Christian life apart from faith. And, and a simple passage that really sums up all that we've been looking at in Hebrews 11 as we move into chapter 12, is that wonderful passage in verse 6 of chapter 11. And remember, the author says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you realize it's impossible to worship God without faith? It is impossible. Whatever is not a faith is ultimately going to be revealed as sin in our life. Faith is going to be trusting in God and trusting in his word, trusting in his promises. If you're going to think about being an authentic worshiper, and we have to recognize as Christians, faith has got to be in the ingredients. Faith has got to be a part of that. Apart from faith, there can be no acceptable worship before God. And this is what the author's driving home in Hebrews 11. And, and all of those who've come before us testify of the life of faith and that we cannot please God apart from the life and the walk of faith. Another ingredient that's absolutely essential and actually becomes really what real faith is. If you understand biblical faith, you can't separate faith and obedience. But another important, essential ingredient in this part of being an authentic worshiper is not just faith, but it's obedience. It's obedience to what God's word is saying. You remember just in the prior few verses we read earlier, Hebrews 12, 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse him who is speaking. And we learned, you know, the way that God has spoken is he's spoken to us through his word. And it says, therefore, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The fellowship and the life of the believer is walking with Christ in an attitude of faith and in a submissive heart of obedience before God. Those ingredients are primary when it comes to a life of authentic worship. Apart from those two, you can't worship God. But there's another part of this. You remember earlier in the book, Hebrews 3, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't, don't harden your heart. Don't harden my heart. You know, that, that, that faith and obedience are critical if we're going to live as true worshipers. But the third ingredient that I think is obvious in this is God's word. Is God's word. You remember back in chapter four when the author says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God has spoken to us through his word. And faith and obedience to God find their bearings in the word of God and how God has revealed himself in the scripture. So, so the Christian is on this journey. Whether you're a teenager, whether you are the oldest person in the room, whether you're middle-aged, it doesn't matter. You don't neglect, you can't neglect these ingredients for a life of worship. It's, it's, it's faith and obedience in response to what God has revealed. It's walking in worship of him. I'll remind you of a passage that we looked at last week, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We present our bodies out of faith and obedience, not with fists that are clenched, but palms that are opened up, hands that are opened up to God in an attitude of humility and submission to what he desires in our life. Apart from that, there's no worship. But aren't you thankful today that the Father desires those to worship him in spirit and in truth, and yet God, through the new covenant and the promises given in Jesus Christ, make it available and enables Christians to live this way. Isn't that good news? Because I'll tell you what, apart from that good news, we would just be here overwhelmed with one more law that we had to live up to that we could not attain. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he enables what he commands, and because he's our great high priest, now he enables us to live by faith, obedience to the word of God. So let's jump in this morning now to the characteristics of authentic worship. We can't neglect the ingredients, but I believe with all my heart that the characteristics are going to be a byproduct of those ingredients. The byproduct is going to be, apart from a submissive attitude of faith, a submissive, obedient heart, submissive to God's word and the authority of scripture, we're not going to see these attributes in our life. So let's jump in. In verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The first characteristic of authentic worship that I believe he, he follows up with at the end of chapter 12 is love. And as we look at this, we're going to see love to the brothers Love to the strangers and love to the prisoners. Love to the brothers in verse 1, love to the strangers in verse 2, love to the prisoners in verse 3. He's just going to show this, this, this wrapped up here. A life of what God is calling us to in worship. Again, it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to take worship and identify it as a part of a service on a Sunday morning. But then we get into the New Testament and we learn that what God desires is not you to just be somewhere for, you know, an hour and a half once a week. He desires all of you. He desires your life. He desires not the sacrifice of dead animals, but the sacrifice of a living person, a sacrifice of day-to-day -day yielding to him as to what he's given us in his word. And, and as we yield to him by his grace, it's only possible through his grace, as we submit to him, a byproduct of our life is going to be the love that he produces within us. The love of Jesus Christ is going to be seen in our life in the body of Christ. That's what authentic worship is all about. Let brotherly love continue. When we look at these, this love to the saints, um, here he uses a word, there's three main Greek words for love in the New Testament, and they seem to overlap. So we got to be careful about making them incredibly distinct. I think that they used interchangeably at times. But brotherly love, brotherly affection. Think about that familial type love that siblings have for one another when things are going the right way, <laughs> right? 
the, 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 you know, the greatest picture in your mind of, of a healthy family and that familial love for one another that now we see is a picture that, that is what God desires in Christ through the body of Christ. Love, sacrificial giving response to others because of Christ in us. Look at some of these verses about love. Let brotherly love continue. We are to live within the body of Christ, and we are to show love to one another. We're to love one another. In John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. I'm going to run through some verses here. Notice this. This is fun, and it just again reminds us of what the law could not produce, the grace of the new covenant now brings us in Christ. It says in Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I love this because it's sort of the the analogy of uh, you can't find love without his buddy faith. Faith is always hanging out with his buddy love. They never exist apart from each other. There's people like that, you know, growing up that we can think of. You're always at their house. You're always hanging out. Those people are together. Faith and love cannot be separated because in the Christian's life, love cannot be seen and manifested apart from faith. They work together. Faith and love go hand in hand. He says in Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let it continue. I love this. This is to be the DNA of the believer. Uh, Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In 1 John, the apostle says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You, you recognize the family members by their way that they remind you of the father. I tell you, the older I get, it, 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 it blesses me, but it's sort of funny and, and it's crazy, isn't it? How you can see yourself turning into your dad or you can see yourself turning into your mom. You see, and you see that, and I'll see pictures, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. If Dad was here, I'd be like, Dad, here I come. I'm catching up with you. I'm looking more like you every day when I look at a picture or I see myself in the mirror. It's not strange to expect a son in the family to resemble the father. And if you don't see a resemblance of the parents, you start to get a little bit curious, don't you? You start wondering, what's going on here? Well, in the family of God... We are marked because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We're marked by love. We're marked by the love that the Father has given us in his Son. And now we love because he loved us and we've been born of God. And in fact, you remember as we were going through the fundamentals of the faith study, if you've been joining us in that whole process, what a, what a joy and what a journey. But we've been learning about the Holy Spirit, and we've been learning about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we learned in Galatians 5.22 what the fruit of the Holy Spirit looks like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. When you have those ingredients of the true worshiper, and you have those ingredients of faith, love, and the Word, the Holy Spirit working through all those ingredients, what happens? There's love. The love that the the body experiences because of the Holy Spirit working in us. It's, it's by the Holy Spirit. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I want you to think with me about the people in your life in the body of Christ that have ministered to you the love of Jesus. And you can think about your testimony. You can think about your life in church. And if you've been in a church with authentic Christians, the one thing we can relate to is the way in which Christ has ministered to you through his people. But there's not only a love to the brothers, there's a love to strangers. In verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
uh, th- this is exciting because, you know, in the, uh, in the New Testament time, the culture and the situation and the context historically was so different. I know it's difficult sometimes. You know, one of the biggest challenges when we read the Bible is building a bridge that's a faithful bridge from 2,000 years ago into the present without in any way confusing the text. But what we learn here is, is like we're to be hospitable to strangers. That could involve those that are lost. That could involve those who are Christians. And we know that that's the priority within our lives. It says, especially to those of the household of faith in Romans 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And during this time, Christians that were ministering the gospel, Christians that were coming through, they always had a place. They always had their needs met by the body of Christ. It's a great image, isn't it? It's a great reminder that we are a family, and the family, while it manifests itself in a local church, we have to remember the universal body of Christ, but we also have to remember that Christ has called us to minister to our lost neighbors, to our lost friends, to people we don't know that are lost, strangers. We can show Christian hospitality, and the author here is saying, look, you're supposed to love not only the brothers, but you're to love strangers. I was thinking about in, in the times that I've had a chance to travel around the world and, and different places that I've been, whether it was Jerusalem, whether it was Jordan, whether it was Myanmar, whether it was Romania, wherever I've been, I've seen the opportunity for other Christians and other cultures to show hospitality to me. And what a, what a, what a, what a picture and a reminder of what this love, authentic worship is to look like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and that love is to be seen to the brothers. I tell you, it reminds you, I didn't mention it earlier, but I pray that we're learning about what a healthy ecclesiology, a healthy understanding of the church is. We can't apply this if we neglect the church. You can't do it. Um, So to encourage you, it could be that if you don't see the church as a priority, a lot of people are like, ah, you know, I can, I can get spiritual instruction here. Oh, I like this or I like that. But we have to see that when we look at the New Testament, we're dealing with the assembly. We're dealing with the body of Christ that comes together. And part of their interaction was not only the word of God, was prayer, was the ordinances, but it was also the context through which they could minister to one another. It's really hard to do that in isolation. It's really hard. I, I challenge you to think about this, and this is not to knock anybody, but if you've missed church for like, you know, 12 straight weeks, how are you doing with the one another commands? It doesn't work, does it? And I remember that in college. My freshman year, I think I went to church like three times. I got into another city. I was playing ball, and I didn't know anybody, and I lost sight of everything to do with the importance of the local church. And during that time, I was wondering I was like in a foreign land. I had no bearings for my life as to how God intended me to live as a Christian. So we see this not only to the brothers, we see this to strangers. You minister to those that God puts in your path, and then he makes this amazing statement that that even in our hospitality, we may not realize it, but we might have even ministered to angels. So much to look at here and to think about you could go and delve into that we're not going to focus on this morning, but you see Old Testament examples with Abraham. You see Old Testament examples where they were unaware of the angelic that was a part of their midst. It just shows, goes to show you that so often when we live under and walking in acceptable worship, we don't fully understand all that's taking place. We don't understand the ramifications of how God is working in his plan and in his way. um, When we get into this next part, we see love to the prisoners. Love to the prisoners. Um, It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. See, in this book, we've learned not only about people that had their property plundered, We've learned about the potential for martyrdom, even in the last chapter, in chapter 12. But what we look at here is that there were people that had encountered persecution to the point of going to prison. 
And so here he's calling them to have a love that's empathetic, that really ministers to people and doesn't forget about them. He says, don't neglect hospitality. And the word neglect means don't forget about it. Because if you forget about it, you, you tend not to do it. And so it's the same idea. It's like, look, let me share with you what this love looks like. And it's going to be a love that not only blesses the body of Christ in the one another's, it's going to be a love that not only ministers to strangers, but it's going to be a love that supports those that are hurting, supports those that are in a situation that they can't get out of. And these prisoners would have been dealing with that. I was looking at a source about the early church and how they ministered to one another. And one source says that they left nothing undone, speaking of a prisoner that was uh, persecuted, he left nothing undone in the effort to rescue him. Then as this was impossible, every other form of attention was shown him, not in any casual way, but with, but with from the very break of the day, aged widows and orphan children could be seen waiting near the prison while their officials even slept inside with him after bribing the guards. The elaborate meals were brought in and sacred books of theirs were read aloud. Another source says, if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. If there is among them a man that is poor or needy and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. What a picture of not forgetting those that are hurting. And he says, don't forget the prisoners. Don't forget what they're dealing with. Imagine that you are the one who's suffering and don't neglect their needs. So we see love is gonna be a byproduct of what Christian worship is all about. But the second one this morning we're gonna look at, what's the second byproduct? It's purity. Purity. When we look at this, it, it's fascinating because he says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. You get into verse four and you see the, the, this topic comes up. And, and I'll tell you, you know, one of the approaches that I've been taught in preaching is that you don't just go after topics, but you let the word of God bring up the intended topics. And so I haven't really taught on this in months. So it's not trying to go after anything. It's just trying to make sure you hammer home what the word of God says. And this is such a timely passage. It's such important. And we learn so many things here. Purity is going to be reflected in authentic worship. You see, one thought that comes out of this passage that some were taking celibacy and they were saying that that was a more spiritual way than marriage. You see that in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 when he spoke of people who forbid marriage and also those that re would require abstinence from foods that God created. And Paul basically says, no, you've got it all backwards. Marriage is good and holy and right. But, but that could be what's going on here. But one thing that it does do is that it speaks into our lives about how God views morality, how God views marriage, how God views gender. Those are important topics. And if you haven't noticed, that's a, a very interesting topic in our world today, isn't it? Uh, we look at this and we see that, I, I pray that, I was thinking about our students because I've got children and I love them dearly. I think about them all the time, and I care about them, and I watch them growing up in this world, and, and I'm burdened for them because I see a society that's literally seeking to dismantle the family unit, just literally seeking to dismantle it. And you look at this, and you go, okay, what do we want for not only our adults, but what do we want for our kids? We want a, a biblical understanding of the Word of God. Because if, if you simply base what you think on what a pastor said, then it comes down to whether you agree with the pastor or not. But if you see biblical authority not from what a man says, but what from God has revealed in his word, then it changes even the way you gauge and evaluate preachers. It's not that the man is the one with the authority. The man stands in authority as one under authority. Does that make sense? The preacher is to be accountable to the word of God. He's accountable to the Lord. So you look at this and you go, okay, why is the Bible important here? Because it says all scripture is inspired by God. 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scriptures breathed out by God. So when we look at the word of God, we open up the word of God. When we read the Bible, we read God speaking. If we want to hear God speaking, we don't have to seek some mystical experience where we feel like we have some impression of the Holy Spirit. We need to go to God's word to see where God speaks. We open his word, he speaks. But another passage here is important. Is this just the words of dead men? ancient dead men that didn't understand progressive culture. But what does he say? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we read in this passage in Hebrews, we read what? Let marriage be held in honor among all. What is marriage? Where did the institution of marriage come from? How is it defined? These are critical questions. We look at a passage like Matthew 19, and it is a phenomenal passage because it not only discusses gender, it discusses marriage, and it discusses the institution and the ordination of marriage, how God ordained it, how God brought it apart. Matthew 19, 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Look at verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them how? Male and female. That's important. I never imagined that that would be such a needed teaching topic 20 years ago today. That God made people male and female out of his wisdom for his glory for his purpose. And, and, and one thing I want to encourage our younger crowd here, because I think that we're naive as to the onslaught of the way in which they are being targeted in the way they think. You're either going to learn a worldview from what God says, or you're going to be a puppet of the culture. And the true test of whether or not you believe in the sufficiency and the authority of the Bible will be seen in the years to come. It'll be seen how you live in real time, not just by what your parents say. It's going to be seen by, is there a submission to what God reveals in his word? Because here what we learn is marriage is between a man and a woman. God ordained it. It's not for tax breaks. It's not for, um, you know, it's not for income arrangements. It, It is an institution that comes about because God ordained it. And this union is unique. I think this is one thing that we can be encouraged by. Marriage between a man and a woman is unique because it's God's design. It's unique because man complements the woman. The woman complements the man not just in physical traits, but in non-physical traits. The man and the woman, it's unique in marriage because this is the way that God intended to feel and populate the earth. It's unique because it's, notice this, it's designed, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, it's designed for the glory of God And God uses marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. So when we look at this, it's important. So let marriage be held in honor among all. So a biblical understanding of marriage is that the only marriage that God has ordained is a marriage between a man and a woman. We keep going here. And then he says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let marriage be held in honor. The word honor means let it be esteemed. Let it be respected. Let it be honorable among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. The word undefiled means without stain, unsoiled, undefiled by sin. And then notice what he says. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 
So when we come to God's word, we have to go, okay, Lord, what are you revealing? And God reveals his law and God reveals his holiness. And he describes what is moral and pure and what is immoral and what is adulterous. And here he's speaking about illicit sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant, whether before marriage or once married. Listen, listen to some of these passages, Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It, it, we're in a day when uh, marriage is completely devalued. It's, uh, the divorce runs rampant within the church. Uh, many people, it's not uncommon at all. To, to go to church with people who are for years with somebody, but then it just gets boring and it's not something they want to keep up with, and they just decide to remarry. And we have to understand that God calls that out, and God says to honor marriage. We're, we're in a society right now that says that homosexuality is natural and good. And what we have to understand is, is that Romans teaches that in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. As he keeps moving in Romans, look what he says here. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to not be done. We look at this passage and we look at other passages, and when we think about marriage being held in honor and let the marriage bed be undefiled, we come into this equation where we say, okay, what equals purity and what we equals immorality? And what we have to see is that God says anything sexually that takes place outside of the marriage covenant is sinful, it's immoral. And we have to see that and recognize it. It's to be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I tell you, I was looking at the statistics of like high school sexual activity in the country. It's staggering. Young people, I want to encourage you. Follow Christ. The marks of authentic worshipers is going to be purity. Well, how are you going to have purity in your life as a Christian who lives in a society when literally a staggering amount of your friends are participating in sinful activity? How are you going to do that? You've got to have the ingredients of authentic worship. It's a life of faith. It's a life of obedience. It's a life of submission to the word of God. And a byproduct of your life will be not only love for the body of Christ and love for strangers and love for those who are hurting, but it's going to be purity. It's going to be purity in your life. And you may be thinking, how in the world can I maintain that in such a difficult time? Well, the good news is, is that you would need extraordinary grace. But extraordinary grace comes through the new covenant blessings that are in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? I'll tell you, a lot of people are, here's what we're doing. A lot of people are posturing right now, and they're saying, you know what? How can I be cool and still Christian? Because I'm all about Christianity, but I don't want to be looked at as a weirdo. I want to make sure that I'm okay. I, there was a guy, there's a guy years ago, it's fascinating. In 2012, he wrote this article, a guy named Carl Truman. He's one of the big thinkers in the world of theology. And he's coming out of the Presbyterian world, and 
Here's what he says. I want you to listen to this. He says, two things come to mind. Two things came to mind. The beautiful young things of the Reformed Renaissance have a hard choice to make in the next decade. You really do kid only yourselves if you think you can be an Orthodox Christian and be at the same time cool enough and hip enough to cut it in the wider world. Frankly, in a couple of years, it will not matter how much urban ink you sport, how much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft brews you can name, how much urban gibberish you spout, how many, he goes on, how much money you divert from gospel preaching to social justice, maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. I think it's gonna be crucial, young people, adults, that we don't need to, we need to be faithful to God's word and faithful to Christ, authentic worshipers in all of life. But I'm telling you, if you don't think that there's not gonna be lines drawn in the culture about your view of scripture, you're naive this morning. I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I said it 10 years ago, I may go to jail in my lifetime for preaching the gospel. You realize, uh, depending on how this thing moves in the next 10 years, it may be hate speech to preach on this passage. Maybe hate speech. And I say that not out of fear, but I say it to you that we better understand where are we getting our direction from? If we're going to get it from the culture, I'll tell you, kids, you're going to be as progressive as the culture allows you to be 20 years from now. And it will be much more progressive than it already is. But if we're going to be kids, if we're going to be teenagers, if we're going to be adults of the faith, we're going to take our marching orders from the word of God. And we're going to be faithfully submissive to his truth. And I'm telling you, it's a big deal because one of the marks of authentic worship is purity. And one of the areas of purity is not just in love, it's in sexual ethics. And so the cruelest thing that we can announce to the world is a progressive Christianity that basically says, anything you want to be and profess Christ, come on in. At that point, we are literally a blasphemy to the truth of the New Testament. Because we are doing the cruelest thing that can be done at that point. We are announcing to people what God calls as evil and saying that it is good, it is right, and it is normal. So we need to be careful here how we look at this. I, I saw this quote about two years ago, and I, uh, I saw it, I was thinking of it yesterday. J.C. Ryle says, Give me a candle and a Bible and shut me up in a dark dungeon, and I will tell you everything that the world is doing. If we can understand that God's word gives us the compass for how the world is going to go, and, and what Paul, what the author, he's probably influenced by Paul, but he's not Paul, I don't think. What the author here is doing is he's saying, look, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. But then he moves on. The last point in this is number three, is the area of contentment. He says in verse five, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he says, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. A mark of authentic worship it's not just going to be love. It's not just going to be purity. It's going to be contentment. And I don't know about you, but I think if you live in this world and you face the temptations that we all face, you've dealt with this issue that money's not the problem. It's the thing that money sometimes tempts us to do. The temptation is, is that we put our hope and we love money more than the things of God. Have you ever fallen into that trap? A love of money is the root problem here. It's not money. M money, we see all through the scripture how money can be used in a way to honor and glorify God. But what we see is the author saying, keep your life free from the love of money. And then he turns around and says, and be content with what you have. For he has said, and then there's a quotation out of Deuteronomy, 
And then he turns around in verse 6 and gives a quotation out of the Psalms. I want to remind you of how this is used by Paul. Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then look what he says. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we see that he's calling them to contentment. What does the word contentment mean? Now, the quotation that he uses in verse 5 seems to be Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He will not leave you or forsake you. How in the world, I don't know about you, but as you read this, do you think about how does this relate to contentment? It has everything to do with contentment. The reality of God's presence and God's faithfulness should guard us against the temptation of loving money. You may be thinking, how does that work? Well, contentment comes by realizing my sufficiency and my level of enough is not found in my possessions. It's found in my God. Contentment for the Christian is the realization that Christ is all I need and that a love of money is actually a deception. It's, it's, it's actually seeking for money to do something for me that only Christ can provide. I tell you, I think that most people in the room can relate to this struggle because you don't have to, you can have a lot of money and love money, but you can have not much money at all and love money. You can be in the middle class and love money. It doesn't matter. It's not a respecter of class, economic. This can be a sin struggle across the board. But always remember something. When you're discontent, it's a misunderstanding of who you are in Christ. It's a misunderstanding of the blessings that Christ provides. When you're discontent, you're seeking to find what only Christ can give you in material possessions. You're seeking for money to do what it was never intended to do. You're seeking to find your sufficiency. You're seeking to find your enoughness in the things of the world. It can happen, can it? You may be thinking, if I just had another house, I'd be content. If I had that boat, I'd be content. If I had that phone, I'd be content. If I had that iPad, oh, things wouldn't be that much better, but they'd be a lot better. If I had that 401k that so-and-so has, if I had my house paid off, if I just had those things, then I would be okay. And yet, these Christians were faced with the same flesh that we deal with. They were faced with a temptation for a love of money, but he wants them to understand, no, your sufficiency is not in what you gain materially. Your sufficiency is who you are in Jesus Christ. I tell you, this good news. It's really good news. Paul says in Philippians 4, and we're almost done, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The next quotation, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is amazing. It's almost like he transitions and he's like, look, don't covet. Don't go after more. Be content. And if you come to a place by the grace of God where you recognize Jesus is enough, not only will it guard you from the love of money, but that soul contentment will guard you from the fear of people. I tell you, that's a big struggle for a lot of us, isn't it? What people think about us and what people could do to us. And yet in verse six, he says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So what do we have this morning? We see that a byproduct of authentic worship is not only love, it's purity, it's contentment. And the beauty of this hope 
is that these are the blessings and these are the characteristics that only the Holy Spirit can produce within our lives. Do you realize that if the lost world can come up with love, purity, and contentment, there's no need for the gospel? Why did Jesus die, right? But what does it show us? It shows us that we need new covenant blessings to live a life of love, purity, and contentment. And this morning, I announce to you that the good news of Jesus Christ brings it. The beauty of the gospel makes this possible. So this morning, as we think about Abigail's waffles, and we think about those ingredients that we need to get those waffles, we can never forget the ingredients of authentic worship, faith, obedience, and the word of God. As we live and as we move from here, let's pray that we would understand that in the new covenant, as people of Mount Zion, as people that have moved from Mount Sinai to be citizens of Zion, now we live out of a different perspective. We live as a different people with different motivations and with a different grace to live. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the hope that we see in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, today that it could be, Father, that uh, there's people here that are just dealing with immorality. They're dealing with discontentment. They're dealing with a lack of love. I pray, oh God, today, that, Lord, they would see the beauty and the goodness of Jesus And Lord, rather than trying to fix those areas of their character, I pray, Lord, they would understand it's a heart issue. That, Lord, these characteristics flow out of a person's heart. I pray, Lord, they would look to you. And Lord, if they're a child of God already, Lord, I pray today they'd find the joy of the promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, oh, Lord, today if they recognize that they lack love, they lack purity, and they lack contentment because they are literally an enemy of God and they've never come through the cross of Jesus by grace through faith alone, I pray today, oh, God, that they would be their day of salvation. I pray today they would see the kindness of your work and they'd be set free. Lord, I thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.